on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. Welcome to On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Francis Leach here, on me lonesome today. Sal can't be with us. It's a special edition of On The Job. It is our May Day edition. What is May Day? And how did it come to be the International Day of Celebration of Working People and Labor? That's the question we're going to try and answer because May Day's been around for a hell of a long time. And look, we we take our May Day uh, seriously here in the union movement, no doubt about that. But most people don't quite know what it's about. So today, pencils and papers at the ready, and there's going to be a test at the end of it. Like an ex- no, no, no exams. Not going to traumatize you with that. But we are going to catch up with labor historian Dr. Liam Byrne to discuss the history of Labor Day. Here on the job. This is the voice of a great unionist by the name of Paddy Crumlin from the MUA, the Maritime Union of Australia. And this is a message he put out a couple of years ago on May Day, just to give you a sense of what it means to people. Brothers and sisters and comrades, it's May Day. It's our day. Workers' Day, our colour is red. Red because of blood that has been spilt because of the blood that runs through our veins, because the common, lowest common denominator of all humanity is our human cooperation, our belief in each other, and our willingness to reach out and get the job done, not on, on behalf of one person, certainly, individuals are important, but on behalf of all of humanity, all of the labour movement, all of the ITF, regardless of the sections we come from. So let's celebrate it. Let's celebrate the great achievements that May Day has given us, working men and women all over the world, from old age pensions, to unemployment benefits, to regular work, to penalty rates, to security of employment, all of the things that gives us dignity, the right to bargain agreements, the right to be recognised to come together into unions, all of the things that make us complete and give us the protections we need is a celebration of May Day. May Day is when workers, working men and women and their families from all over the world come together and celebrate those things. Celebrate peace. There can be no dignity and decency in our working life if there's not peace. There he is, Paddy Crumlin, uh, Secretary of the uh, Maritime Union of Australia there with a message about May Day. Dr Liam Byrne is uh, the historian at the Australian Council of Trade Unions and he joins us here to talk about May Day and its history and uh, he's with us now. G'day, uh, Liam, how are you going? G'day, Francis, how are you? Not too bad. Stirring words from from a great unionist, a great uh, working oh, class amazing, hero, yeah. Paddy Crumlin there. Um, Always great to hear Paddy Crumlin speak, wonderful. Tell us about the history of May Day and take us back to the start here, Liam. What is its genesis? That's right. Well, it's actually been around for millennia, which is quite extraordinary. So really we're talking about pre-Roman times. So it was actually a pagan ritual that was developed around the idea the 1st of May represented the new planting season. And so it was seen as being connected to a lot of the sort of spiritual systems of the time. And particularly for people who were working in the fields, it was a day of celebration before you know the arduous toil that they're about to endure was going to go through, but also just promised that there was going to be a harvest of bounty to come, that you know, fertility had returned to the land after winter. So it was something that was sort of on the one hand, very, very connected to those sort of spiritual system. But on the other, it was about people who worked. It was about our day to celebrate. Now, over time, this changed a lot. Throughout the sort of like Middle Ages and particularly sort of like the 17th century, you get a bit of hostility from the churches who, you know, they really weren't keen on this sort of idea of people maintaining these pagan rituals. If you're uh, particularly a lot of the Christian churches, they preferred to just rip off pagan rituals and then 
referendum as their own and then pretend it never happened. I should say that I am actually myself a Christian, but I'm fully aware that this occurred. But by the sort of 17th uh, century, 18th century, you have this sort of new process where working people are still celebrating it, not the union movement, which wasn't really around yet. But a lot of the people who own the land or who are in the church aristocracy, they didn't really like the fact that people were kind of celebrating this tradition, which was about labour. It was about work. It wasn't about the sort of things that they wanted to be celebrated. It makes sense, isn't it? Because those sort of harvest festivals still exist in different cultures all around the world. And that is about celebrating uh, the fruits of your labour. So I've never made that connection before, but that makes perfect sense. Yeah, well, it's one of those things that there's so few opportunities for people to celebrate themselves and the work that they do when they come from what I'd call a subordinate class. So you look throughout history, you think about the peasants in feudal Europe. They're people who are just completely subordinated in every aspect of their lives to the Lord or to you know the monarch. But there's some moments where they do actually get to reclaim some dignity about what they do and who they are in their social system. Now, obviously, it'd be better if they were just protesting all the time and ripping these sort of horrendous old feudal systems down. But it is a huge advancement to have that sort of moment where you say, well, we celebrate the work that we're going to do, that we do do, that we have a place in society and that should be recognised and respected. You don't really get many opportunities for that. So it became a big celebration um, and an opportunity to do that with some, you know, ways of celebrating that we wouldn't want to, you know, recapture today. Oh, can course, you tell us a few? <laughs> well, the ones that I, f- I found uh, <laughs> strangest to kind of get my head around was this a sort of a ritual of erecting a maypole where young unmarried people would dance around it and a May Queen would be appointed from... So like a medieval Tinder. Yes, a whole whole (laughs) process which seems quite grotesque to me, uh, but still that was in the context of the time, that's what they did. But I'm not suggesting at all that we should celebrate every aspect of this day, but that is the origin. So we head into the 19th century and industrialisation and the Industrial Revolution arrives and mass production becomes a thing and uh, labour becomes more concentrated and, you know, urbanised communities are working in squalor and it starts to get uh, really oppressive for working people. What happens? Well, so the big demand of the 19th century, most uh, working class movements across the world was the eight-hour day. Yep. So this is the right – and when I say eight-hour day, I mean eight hours a day, six days a week. So eight hours of work, eight hours of rest? Eight hours of uh, either recreation or actually self-improvement was the sort of concept that was used a lot. A lot of working people sort of said, well, we're more than the work that we do. We shouldn't spend all of our lives doing work. Of course, we want to work. We want to work hard. We want to be proud of that. But we want to write to do all the things that we would recognise now. To read, we want to spend time with our family. We want to go to the football. You know, We want to have a right to live. Work-life balance is the term that we'd use today. And so you look through at the 19th century – There's huge battles that go on in industry after industry, country after country around the world. Anywhere you have an industrial working class, you have the campaign for the eight-hour day. So that's where May Day actually comes from in the way that we currently understand it as a specifically working class uh, sort of celebration was this campaign for the eight-hour day. Okay, so Australia has a very particular and special role and place in the battle for the eight-hour day, doesn't it? It does, absolutely, which is why our celebrations of May Day actually were a little bit different. Because Australia's the first place in the world where the eight-hour day was won as an industry standard. It took place in Melbourne and Sydney, so Victoria, New South Wales, but in those two areas in 1856. Some workers in Sydney had actually won it in 1855, but across the industry, Melbourne and Sydney in 1856. This was shocking across the world. How was it won? Give us a bit of a sense of how that breakthrough occurred. Well, it was really extraordinary. Basically, it was all down to organisation that the people in the um, industries, the stonemasons, many of whom were uh, migrants to Australia and had come from, particularly from those from Britain, had come from a tradition of working class organising there. There was a movement called the Chartists, which was not quite the union movement, but it was definitely a workers' movement. And they brought those traditions of organising here. So they created their own union. 
which was vitally important because they, for the first time, there's a collective voice for workers that was actually advocating, you know, this is the position of all of us. So it's much stronger when they're talking to employers. They had public meetings. They had big protest marches. They even organized an essay competition, which I'm not sure we should adopt as a tactic for some of our industrial campaigns today. And when employers didn't agree, because there's huge public pressure on the employers because of this campaigning to agree to it, when they didn't agree, the workers went on strike in some places. Down in Melbourne, the workers building the University of Melbourne building and the Parliament State Parliament building, they went on strike on the same day. Very, very helpfully, it was an extremely hot day, so it was quite easy to pull everybody out on strike. Went on a massive protest through the city, and that sort of got the last recalcitrant employers on board, and it became an industry standard. Now, not all workers across all industries had it. That's important to note. That campaign continued, but this was internationally a benchmark, and it astounded people that it happened. So that rippled across the world, that news. Yeah, absolutely. People literally across the world were discussing the scene. If you, if you look at papers, you know, in Germany, for instance, you know, it's a very strong workers' movement there. So it's a place that you may sort of think that they wouldn't really take too much interest in Australia. They were astounded and they were for decades because the eight hour day was one of many big victories that the Australian Union movement won first internationally and set this benchmark. So workers in many, many other places were looking at Australia and saying, well, how can we do what the Australians have done? How can we be a bit more like they are down under? And this sort of led to a real. I suppose it's the sort of thing that we can really be quite proud of today, that you know, some of the, the earliest sort of big international accomplishments of Australia was actually the union movement winning rights for workers. So that was an extraordinary moment in the middle of the 19th century, but May Day itself hadn't really formed as a concept yet, but it did sort of burst into life in really violent circumstances in the United States. Tell us what happened there. Many decades after the construction workers in Australia had won the eight-hour day, so they were campaigning in the United States, and obviously it was extraordinarily difficult in the United States to win workers' rights, then as now, as we've seen in many campaigns recently, many instances recently, the, the really bitter opposition that exists amongst the business community and many politicians to workers' rights in America. And violent so opposition too. Very violent. The United States in the 19th century, like unironically, this is a place where employers would hire gangs of mercenaries to physically prevent unionisation, often through murders. There's a great movie called Matawan about it, if uh, anybody listening, like me, just refers to movies constantly and everything that we do, which um, I'm astounded I haven't mentioned Star Wars yet, but I'm sure at some point it will come up. <laughs> but basically, because of this you know, very, very bitter opposition, there were giant protests that were organised, um, particularly in Chicago, for the eight-hour day in the 1880s. And as in 1886, on the 1st of May, there was a giant protest. There was severe police violence against it and repression against it. And a few days later, there was a protest on the 4th of May against that police violence, and it continued to demand for the eight-hour day. A bomb was thrown. It's never been sort of definitively proven who threw it, if it was from a section of the protesters or an agent provocateur. But what did follow was a mass repression of the, the protesters, who the vast bulk of whom were certainly not involved in any activity like that. The uh, show trial of a number of leaders of the protest clearly had no connection to the violence that took place, and the execution of a number. And so this working leaders being executed by the state obviously was a uh, horrifying thing. Workers across the world were just aghast at it. And the end of that decade, 1889, the second international, people might not know of because we don't really have this thing anymore, but basically it was all the workers' parties, the political parties, all joined this big thing called the international where they'd get together, have congresses and debate. They decided to make the 1st of May from 1890 a day of protest and also commemoration. So this is the sort of thing about May Day and its tradition is that it's always kind of had a dual focus, that it's about looking to the past, remembering what's happened, but it's often been a campaigning day as well. It's about, we say, that's the sort of thing that we know has happened. What kind of future do we want to create as well as workers? Like, how do we not just celebrate our past? How do we create the future? And that was very much what it was invested in. So that's the Haymarket ride, that infamous ride in Chicago, which sparked the May Day phenomena into life. But Australians were 
We had our own thing going on with the eight-hour day, so we didn't really take to May Day initially. We took another event in Australia, which was just as intense and as controversial to really galvanise Australians around May Day. Did it? Tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. And that's just so people know, that's why we celebrate um, the Labor Day holiday in various places. Originally, the Labor Day holiday in Victoria, for instance, was called the eight-hour day. A holiday, so that's that's what it was actually. That's what its origins are and where it uh, originally came from. So there was a different kind of celebration and commemoration because for decades in Australia, people had already been had a different day where we celebrated pretty much the same thing. So it was in 1890 when the big May Day protests were launched. There was a, a dinner that took place. There's a quite eccentric uh, Labor MP called Dr. Maloney who organised a dinner, and there's a number of people sort of like from the left and the union movement who went, but it wasn't a really a big deal because the Labor Day celebration, what it was all about. But in 1891, something really important happened, which was a, a strike of shearers. It just shocks me whenever I look at this uh, Shearer strike is how similar so much of what they were doing in 1891 is similar to what we're doing today or what we're experiencing today. Okay, tell us what those similarities were. Tell us about that strike and how it reflects with what's going on today. So if you're a Shearer, it uh, depends a little bit about where you were, but your work was dangerous, it was insecure, uh, and it was definitely nowhere near as well paid as it should have been for you know the danger and the production that you were putting into it. Now, what happened in that sort of period was that there was a group of employers who came together to impose what they called uh, freedom of contract. This is one of those things that sounds like, oh, perfect, absolutely what everybody should be, but it's actually an attempt to prevent working people coming together and negotiating on block through their union. So like a gig economy 19th century style shearing thing. Yeah, basically. Like it's a way to individualise. It's like everything that John Howard did and the subsequent conservative governments did from 1996 onwards, where they completely rejigged our industrial relations system, is about returning to this. And this idea that you individually as a worker should be negotiating with your employer and you shouldn't have the right to band together with your workmates to get a better deal as a group and to make your voice stronger. It's about completely preventing that. And as a result, work is harder, it is more dangerous, and it's not as well paid as it should be. So the Shearers didn't like this because they had a union. They were quite committed to their union because it was them. They was it the were Australian the Workers' Union? The Australian Workers' Union, yeah. So the origin of the Australian Workers' Union is an amalgamation of the Shearers' Union and another union. So it's a pretty extraordinary story of working people coming together, taking action. But this is the Australian Workers' Union as we know it today. And this was one of the sort of like the struggles that really, really helped define that union and its place in Australian history. Um, and it is, you know, the union has incredible influence in Australian history. One, you know, fascinating, fascinating sort of stories. I mean, this is a time where we're talking about the, the repression the American workers faced. These protesters were literally read the Riot Act. If you were a striking shearer, police would come, stand in front of your picket lines and read you the Riot Act. Workers from the, the leaders of the strike were arrested. They were tried. They were sentenced to hard labour. You know, think about what that means. To take people for protesting for their rights at work were sentenced to hard labour. So the equivalent of like smashing stones in a, a jail yard. I mean, this is the type, kind of treatment that was handed out. So while we can, as, and we should sort of point to like the, the ways that the labour movement's been repressed in places like America historically, this happened here too. What happened with that strike? Was it a success and was May Day born as a celebration or was it in fact a bit of disappointment that is being commemorated as, a, as lessons to be learned? So what happened was that the strike endured for a number of months and the May Day commemoration in 1891 sort of arose from that. So in Buckholden up in Queensland, there was actually a giant protest. There's about 1,300 people who were taking part. And of course, remember, the population was much smaller then. So that's a, quite a large protest for a relatively small town at that point. There were people on horseback who were carrying sort of like Eureka flags, union banners and red flags. So really impressive, quite extraordinary sort of sight. And they marked the day to connect to that sort of idea of the global movement, the global campaign, but also to bring what they were fighting for, which was not just the eight-hour day, but it was the broader sort of idea of workers' rights. So it kind of fit the mood of what May Day was becoming at that point, which was a campaign for workers' rights more broadly. 
But the strike itself was defeated. There was actually more strikes that kept coming over the following years because this was a time of economic depression as well. So it was very, very difficult for, for unions to gain uh, foothold and to win. The thing was that through that process of fighting and actually campaigning and making sure that they were out there sort of putting the workers' position forward, it actually meant that they were able to hold the unions together and that also that they were able to spread awareness of what they were doing. And so as a result, the union actually grew in membership. It was a bit of a slump immediately afterwards, but in the years to come, grew in membership. The AWU becomes one of the largest, most influential unions in Australia. And within a few years, you have a slate of really, really progressive reform and things that they were campaigning for in the 1890s, such as an arbitration system, something which we don't really have anymore, but a way to bring workers into the industrial relations system, which hadn't previously existed. So it's one of those things quite often happens in the workers' movement. The specific example, it'd be tough to say that it was a big success, but actually from that, there was so much learning and so much sharing experience that there were things that came from that which were quite positive over the longer term. Dr. Liam, working class consciousness was really growing at the start of the 20th century. And it was moving towards, I guess, the, the Russian Revolution, which was the flashpoint where, um, you know, the world changed around the ideal of, of workers' rights, for better or for worse, depending on your politics, but it happened. What was that happening in Australia at that particular time? Were unions becoming stronger and more prominent? And was May Day a really big day on the streets in terms of a protest and a celebration? May Day definitely grew in that sort of commemorative sense. In terms of what was happening here, I mean, in Australia in that sort of point, way before the Russian Revolution, the first Labor government, workers' government anywhere in the world was actually in Australia. It was in Queensland for two weeks in 1899. Then the first national one in the world was Australia in 1904 for four months. Who was the Prime Minister? Uh, that was Chris Watson in 1904. So it was a pretty interesting person with a lot of fascinating backstory. But then not too long after that, Andrew Fisher became Prime Minister in 1908. But then importantly, 1910. Now, this is interesting because it's Australia's first ever majority government. So before 1910, no party ever had a majority in our parliament, but it was the Labor government. And this is the first national labour majority government anywhere in the world. So this is seven years Another first for Australia. Yeah, absolutely. First, 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 first. There was quite quite a few at that point. And you know, there's things at this time where if people may be aware that the private ballot, the idea of going in and voting in a polling booth and nobody can see your vote, that was an Australian invention. I mean, this may sound shocking, but this was actually one of the major, you know, working class uh, demands in the uh, 19th century. I had a student in one of my classes a few years ago on Australian politics who was from the United States. I think she was about 20 or so at the time. She referred to private voting as the Australian ballot, which is what it used to be called. You know, somebody from America today has still got that kind of historical connection with this period of progressive reform. So it's extraordinary we don't celebrate and take pride in these incredible achievements that somehow we've allowed slip into, you know, the mainstream of, of most liberal democratic societies that belong to us. We've sort of not really put our stamp on them in the way that we probably should. Absolutely. And we forget things that the first minimum wage in the world was actually in Australia. Actually, the first one was in the colony as it was then at that time in Victoria. And then the first national, in 1897, sorry, 1896, the first national one was 1907. And then there was a harvester judgment, which that also- was, That was 1907. Yeah. Which was, you know, a union claim, which was brought back. And the back history of that, again, is incredible because a lot of the way it's told is that, you know, we had this judge who was in the arbitration court at the time and he was very, very uh, progressive and forward-looking. So he put forward this decision. But there's actually a huge backstory to that of union agitation and oh, so We're going to do that one on this podcast. <laughs> I'm fascinated by but the Francis, can I just say one yes. thing very, very quickly? That I, I always want to point out this time that there was huge amounts of really positive progressive reform at this time, but it should never be forgotten that at this time there was also really regressive changes, including the embrace of the white Australia policy and the dispossession of Indigenous people, of course, which was continuing. 
So I think it's really important to point out there's a lot of progressive change and a lot of work has benefited from it because of that racism um, and also gender inequality at the time. There's a lot of people who were not gaining from it and, in fact, were explicitly losing out. And I just think it's important that while we talk about the progressive changes and the positive aspects, we have to remember that part of our history as well. So how does that work with the idea of internationalism? I mean, if, if worker solidarity across the globe was about class identity and identifying with each other regardless of language, religion, class and creed, we somehow had this duality where notionally working class people and unionists embraced that, but at the same time were indulging in their own form of very deep systemic racism and bigotry. There's contradiction there, clearly. It's absolutely a contradiction and one of those things, again, which I think that it's really important for us to remember is that when we talk about the internationalism of the movement, that it's not always been the way it should have been. It's not always been consistent. It's not always been practised you know, in the sort of way that now we would say it should be practiced. You know, that's 100% vital to recall and to remember. So a lot of times to come back to your question before about how May Day was celebrated, I think the example may illuminate it a little bit, was that a lot of the time that there would be celebrations organised by political organisations and unions and so on. I mean, one which I think was particularly sort of important at the time was the Victorian Socialist Party, which is not like socialist parties today. It's a very, very different sort of organisation, but had a lot of union activists and a lot of unionists would come into it. And so they would have a maypole that they would dance around at some of their... So they were incorporating that, that old um, pagan ritual into it. So it still had that antecedent sort of floating around Absolutely, there. yeah. And they would also have a point of May Queen, which again is something that I find quite grotesque, but that was you know, their practice. But what they would do is that they would commemorate the international workers' movement. Now, again, what most of them were commemorating when they talked about internationalism was Europe and America was the developed world or what you could the white world and so there was very much this sort of idea that that was their understanding of what internationalism meant for many of them there were others there's you know particularly bernard o'dowd who was a member of the party he's quite a um a famous poet at that time he used to write poems about may day and so on he kind of represented this very very small section who were against that and they actually opposed the white australia policy they were for a more consistent internationalism so people like that did exist and they did, you know, use celebrations like May Day to make their argument that actually if we're going to be true internationalists, that means all workers everywhere. But this was, you know, something that ran completely against the grain of the majority of the movement, which of course was reflecting broader racism in Australian society as well. You know, racism was widely embraced across the political spectrum at the time. And unfortunately, the vast majority of unionists were part of that as well. So there was a section, and this grew bigger, particularly through the 1920s after the Russian Revolution. An important influence on that was the growth of the Communist Party, a sort of section of more consistent internationalists. Uh, who wanted to break down. There was you know, a, a union organisation that was created in the late 1920s that was connected to communist movement, but was through Australia and directly linked to the Asia-Pacific region. And so there's exchanges and so on. So all this stuff did begin to develop in a small scale until later in the century, it was a minority. So I think that it's completely right to point that out, that that is the kind of the contradiction of a lot of people's internationalism, that they claim to be internationalists, but in actual practice for many people, they weren't being consistent internationalists. In fact, they were replicating a lot of the racism of the time and perpetuating that racism. Dr. Liam, what did those celebrations look like at the time? Were they big mass street events? How did it work? Yeah, so they would obviously change year on year, but what they would usually do is that they'd have a Mayday committee appointed. So very, very important work. Or you'd appoint a committee. Of course, in the union movement, if you ever want to you know, do important work, you have to have a committee. So, <laughs> and quite often spend, I mean, not talking about a week, like months preparing these sort of like giant galas and events, but they were always political. So if you look at the ones that sort of took place in Melbourne in the early 20th century, often it would be kind of demarked by political affiliation. I mean, one of the ones that I find, why I always come back to the Socialist Party one, which I, why I find it so interesting, is again, you know, it was a large group of unionists who were connected to that party would come together and celebrate. And one of them was John Curtin. Uh, who would later become Australia's wartime prime minister. And this is one of the places that he first learnt his politics and he learnt his sort of understanding of the world and the way it works. So it's really fascinating to me to think about him coming to these events, which would usually begin with a giant lecture 
Very important then uh, to have these sort of like big mass public meetings. You think it's a time without social media, without television. You know, that's a huge point of connection, but also education. There'd usually be a giant protest march. I heard on at least one occasion that the dance around the Maypole happened three times during a day, which again, not endorsing, but just pointing out that that was what they did. And then they would usually go back and have just a giant celebration, usually a dance. It'd quite often be a band that would play sort of radical songs, workers' songs, be a, a choir. A day, again, of celebration and commemoration, but it'd usually be connected to a political issue that there'd be some aspects of, you know, that they were campaigning on. So like in 1916, that the part of the May Day celebration was to campaign against the imposition of conscription. In later years, you know, 1960s, that there was May Days which were you know, connected to opposing the war in Vietnam. You know, it's, it's always been kind of connected to a campaigning point. What about the advent of the Soviet Union and May Day becoming a, a set piece for the Soviets and, you know, the images of, you know, the of Stalin and Brezhnev and others standing on, on the balcony at Red Square overseeing military parades. Did that tarnish or make May Day more difficult in countries like Australia, which as we got deeper into the 20th century, found themselves on the other side of the Iron Curtain and the Cold War? Well, it certainly did, but we were celebrating Labor Day as the major sort of like protest thing, even more major than May Day until the 1950s. Uh, one of the big things that changed then was the creation, particularly in Victoria, of the Mumba Festival and this kind of attempt to depoliticise that day. So there's always this kind of like alternate sort of day of celebration that was there as well. But So I mean, Mumba was deliberately constructed to try to take the focus away from May Day? I'm not accusing it of being deliberately constructed, but more than Well, they turned it into a, with, you know, like a hereditary <laughs> monarchist event by appointing a king and a queen. Hardly, <laughs> hardly well, this stuff of the Labor movement. The, as I, I pointed out, the May Day, unfortunately, the anticipants of having the May Queen, you know, who knows, maybe it was sort of connected that way. But the Labor Day celebration that became Bubba, what I'm more suggesting is that the kind of the processes of yeah. commemoration and the way it was considered, that was changed. That was whether it was deliberate or not, you know, I'll leave that out to people who've got the um, the time to go through council minutes professionally, which unfortunately I do not because, you know, I'd rather watch Star Wars. So there's, <laughs> I suppose the thing is, when you look at communism and the Australian movement, the way that was sort of seen, absolutely the people, you know, did not like a lot of the images that sort of came from that and were connected to it. But there were, were large communist presences in Australia, uh, which is important to remember that there, were, there was a communist party. In fact, there were several uh, at one point. Many unionists were connected to it. It was never the majority of the movement. But for a lot of people, that was an identity which was adopted as you know, a demonstration that they were kind of, for them, the most radical section of the working class is how they consider themselves, rather than necessarily being simply wanting to recreate the Soviet Union here. Like communism in Australia was much more complicated than that. There were some of those people, don't get me wrong. And the May Day reflection, uh, sort of celebrations reflected that. They were quite often quite, as things could be in the workers' movement, a little bit uh, anarchic, you know, not always the best plan. There was quite often, you know, multiple sort of uh, contingents sort of contesting to be at the front of the march, you know, all the sort of things which are, you know, kind of connected to workers' commemorations or protests at other points. You know, this is all part of, of what the day's like. Tell me about the 1946-49 Pilbara strike and how that played into the mythology and the history of May Day. You know, this is a really extraordinarily important part of um, our history in this country and one which is just nowhere near well uh, known enough about. So what happens um, in the Pilbara is this is a, a period of time which, again, something which very much has parallels today where Indigenous workers were either not receiving wages or they certainly were not receiving equal wages to non-Indigenous workers. And this was widespread throughout a number of industries, but in the Pilbara, those who are working in the stations there. In 1942, a number of sort of Indigenous lawmen, about 200, came together. They represented 23 different language groups and they decided that they were going to take action. And the action that they were going to take is that they were going to go on strike. Now, they decided to wait until the Second World War was over um, for obvious reasons to launch that strike. And so when they came to decide which day it was going to begin, they chose the 1st of May. 
Now, this was chosen because it was, again, it was a day of work. It was a very important sort of part of, of the calendar and when sort of things tipped over, but they chose it because it was May Day. And it was a way to connect their struggle to the broader struggle of working people in Australia and across the world. And this was a phenomenal effort. This lasted for three years, this strike. It was led by Indigenous workers. It was supported by unions and it was supported by members of the Communist Party as well. Very important in that. But it was led and it was run by Indigenous workers themselves, sustained for three years and led to a number of them actually winning the award wages. And when you think about the sort of like extraordinary difficulties of workers campaigning at that time, let alone Indigenous workers because of all the racism and the additional state intervention into their lives that they had to endure, it was literally a crime for an Indigenous worker on one of these stations to leave the station without their white employer's written consent. So indentured labour, basically. Yes. And, you know, it's extraordinary the way this sort of dispossession of racism endured then and, of course, endures today. And so this was an incredible movement, a brave and courageous movement of Indigenous workers going on strike from that day onward, you know, to claim both equal wages, but also broadly to make a point about their right to self-determination and against racism. Something we should all remember. And again, talking about the things that we don't commemorate in this country that we should, the Pilbara strike is definitely one of them. Absolutely. Just to finish, Dr. Liam, May Day started, as you said, as a, you know, its antecedents were in the pagan rituals of medieval times becoming uh, the day of international workers' celebration in the 19th century. Does it still have relevance today? Is it still as potent or, does, or has, has time moved past and have things moved past May Day? Well, I think it certainly doesn't have the prominence that it used to, but I think that the significance of it sort of remains is that that idea that when you look at the workers' movement across the world, at our best, we are bound and connected uh, across the world that we do stand by each other and we do realise that you know, for every one of us, what happens to the rest of us, that has implications for us and we are stronger together. And you cannot look at what's happened over the last year with the COVID-19 pandemic, the economic response and so on, and not see that we live in an extraordinarily interconnected world where work is advancing somewhere helps workers everywhere. And that's the sort of tradition that Paddy was talking about in that introduction. And as long as there is a workers' movement, that international sort of connection is a necessity. And days like May Day hopefully will never be reduced, will never go away because we need to maintain that sort of connection. Importantly, though, it needs to not just be a simple commemoration of the past, or that's always been part of it. It needs to be a day that we celebrate our imagining of what the better future could be. And the idea that working people can create a better world than the one that we live in, because that is the promise of our movement. We can only create a better world if we understand the one that we've been built and made by. And that's why we're so grateful to you, Dr. Liam Byrne, for being here to tell us about the history of May Day. Thank you for being on the job again. Thank you very much, Francis. Am I supposed to administer that exam you're talking about now? Or I are think we, you, did we I cut think, that? Okay, you can, you can be an invigilator. Is it invigilator or invigilator? <laughs> I think it's invigilator, but I don't actually know. Is that is a that weird bad? job? We need to organise invigilators. I do know some invigilators, so we can absolutely. Do we, we might need to them. explain what that, that that's the person that walks around a exam hall, staring imperiously over your shoulder, making sure your cheat notes aren't written in invisible ink on your hand. Oh, is that how people do it? I didn't realise that. <laughs> oh my god, all the I'm years I wasted away my studying. Trade secret. <laughs> Good on you, Dr. Liam. Thanks, Francis. Dr. Liam Byrne, our historian here at Australian Unions on the history of May Day. That's it for on the job for this week. Happy May Day to you all. Uh, don't forget to give us a rating on iTunes or whatever platform that you are on because it helps others find the podcast and enjoy it just like you've been doing. Uh, you can follow me at St. Frankly, as it's spelled S-A-I-N-T-F-R-A-N-K-L-Y on uh, Twitter and whatnot and uh, hit us up with a message there. And Sally will be back next week for another edition of On The Job. Bye for now.